Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. First, some advice. This episode might be best enjoyed with a glass of wine. If you can manage it, a Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley, or what's often known as a Napa Cab. It's the signature product of the winemaking capital of the U.S., and that's the focus of today's episode. Napa Valley has managed to perfect the Cabernet Sauvignon, so much so that the wine has become more than just something to drink. It's become a kind of masterpiece. And like most masterpieces, it's really expensive. The average price of a Napa Cab bottle is about 80 bucks, but that average goes up to $345 for the highest rated wines. That steep cost is thanks to a small group of sought-after wine consultants. An association with one of these elite heavyweights can give wines a stamp of prestige and allow it to meet Napa Valley's masterpiece standard for the Cabernet Sauvignon. Today on Fifth Emission, I get to talk to our own sought-after wine consultant, senior wine critic Esther Mobley. She and other members of the Chronicle Food and Wine team published a package of stories today that look at how the Napa Valley region is in flux. You can find it now at sfchronicle.com slash Napa Valley. One of Esther's stories zeroes in on the Cabernet Sauvignon. She argues that the economics of winemaking have resulted in an over-reliance on wine consultants and that all Napa cabs are starting to taste the same. What does that mean for the future of winemakers in the region? And how might that impact an occasional average wine drinker, maybe someone like you? Esther Mobley, it's a pleasure to have you on Fifth Emission. Thanks for having me. Esther, in your story, you say that Napa Valley's prototypical Cabernet tastes expensive, like, quote, a mink stole, a Lamborghini, or four-carat diamond. I enjoy finer things, Esther, but that's definitely over my head. So tell me, what does expensive taste like? These wines tend to have a smooth, silky texture. There's no grit. There's none of those astringent tannins. The fruit flavors tend to be this kind of delicious peak ripeness. And we're talking flavors that might remind you of a kind of juicy blackberry, a currant jam, figs, blueberries. And there's a quality to these wines that you'll hear some wine writers refer to as high octane. In other words, they're just a little bit turned up in their volume. They're louder, they're aromatic. They're expressive. The alcohol is probably kind of high. The weight of the wine is kind of dense and heavy. They're not subtle wines. You can't miss them. Mm. I'm suddenly kind of thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And these wines are really sought after. They're expensive. An average bottle is about $80, but as you know, they can go up to $1,000 or more. What makes a Cabernet from the Napa region different from elsewhere? 
So Napa Valley, it's America's most famous wine region, and uh, it's also its most expensive wine region. And if you're growing grapes just one smidge into the county line from Sonoma County or uh, Lake County, you can charge considerably more uh, for your wine. At the uppermost echelon of the wine world, this kind of rarefied sphere where collectors who are wealthy are buying and selling wines at Sotheby's auctions. The wines you'll see being traded are from Europe's top regions like Bordeaux and Burgundy and from Napa. Certain wines in Napa have become more than just wines. They're they're investment pieces. They're trophies, really. And many of those wines that you're describing are made by an elite cohort of wine consultants who work on hundreds of Napa's most highly regarded Cabernets, What exactly is a wine consultant's role in making a particular bottle of wine? What do they do? It really varies. So there are many consultants, and this is someone you might hire either instead of or in addition to a full-time winemaker. Some consultants are highly involved. Maybe they're there every day. Those tend, of course, to be the consultants who don't have that many clients. At the other extreme, there are consultants who might show up just once a year to your winery. And if they're going to do one thing, the thing they're going to help with is blending, which is this very important process in the winemaking process. Not everyone may know about it, but um, it's essentially where you're taking stock of all the wine you've got in your various barrels, in your various tanks, and deciding, okay, what combination of liquids from all we've got is actually going to go into this bottle and, you know, what's worth going into our more expensive bottling, what's worth going into our less expensive bottling, et cetera. Um, most consultants fall in somewhere in between the day-to-day and the once-a-year cadence. So they might show up a few times throughout the growing season to kind of look at the vineyards and check how the grapes are progressing. They might uh, do what's known as calling picks, which is this very important thing where they decide exactly when the grapes should be harvested. That ends up determining a lot about the character of the wine, exactly how ripe the grapes were when you picked them. So they really range from very involved to not very involved. And you're really just paying to be able to say X consultant made this wine. And they're paid quite a bit, right? This is a pretty coveted role in Napa. Yeah. One consultant I spoke with in my story said his starting rate goes uh, typically at about $60,000 a year. It can rise uh, as the winery grows, as it becomes more successful. And he has some clients for whom he's charging hundreds of thousands of dollars per year. Wow. So they're obviously a very important role in Napa Valley, but they haven't always been a dominant force. At one point, most wineries had their own in-house winemakers. Why did they start to rely on consultants instead? Consultants basically started to come on the scene in the 1990s. One of the most famous consulting winemakers in Napa, Philippe Melka, started consulting, for example, in 1995. What was happening in this moment in mid-90s Napa was there was an influx of new wealthy vintners who wanted to start pretty small wineries. So they wanted to make top-notch wine, 
but they weren't really quite large enough to warrant a full-time winemaker in many cases. Maybe they just owned a few acres of vines. Maybe they planned to only make a few hundred cases of wine a year. And they all started turning to these consultants who were establishing very favorable reputations. And suddenly it became more than just a matter of convenience. It actually became a kind of status symbol to have one of these winemakers associated with your project. And wineries rely on consultants for their wines to become successful. You talk about a man named Thomas Rivers Brown in your story, who's arguably the most sought after consultant in Napa. How does his association, for example, with a particular bottle influence its success? One of the ways I think about this, it's kind of like if there's a movie that's directed by, let's say, Wes Anderson. Before you even know whether the movie is good or not, you know it's going to get attention, especially from the critics, the press. And many of those critics probably already have a kind of positive opinion of Wes Anderson. So that might color their opinion of it going in, right? There's fans who are going to rush to see it the second it hits theaters because they already have a sense that they're a fan of what this auteur is putting out. So something quite similar happens with certain consultants like Thomas Rivers Brown or like another consultant I mentioned in the piece, Mike Smith. There are people who fancy themselves real fans of these specific winemakers' wines who are going to go right out and get them, even if it's from a vineyard they haven't heard of, even if it's a new brand, even if it's a brand uh, in some cases that may have kind of fallen out of fashion. You're certainly assured a kind of blitz in the wine press, which is paying attention to wines made by these folks. So you get all this before you even get to the question of, how's the wine? (laughs) And... Probably like a Wes Anderson movie, you can kind of tell when it's his movie by the look and the the tone of the film. Is that the same with a wine consultant? Can you identify a wine consultant by just tasting it if you have the palate for it? I don't think I do, but probably you do, right? (laughs) Well, I wish I could say that they were as distinctive as a Wes Anderson movie, which, uh, yes, you could pick it out from a lineup. There are certainly similar characteristics that run through, say, a Thomas Rivers Brown wine. There's kind of a silkiness to his wines. There's this kind of integrated soft tannin that I think people really seek him out for. I wouldn't bet myself on being able to pick a wine blind out of a lineup by the winemaker mm. alone. Um, in fact, I did in the piece uh, even make the inverse argument. Got it. So I want to get to the crux of your story, which is this, which you're alluding to. Critics worry that having so many wines in the hands of a few consultants is homogenizing Napa's signature product of the Cabernet Sauvignon You've tasted many of these wines. Do you feel like they're starting to taste the same? That is indeed the crux of my story. And listen, to some degree, all Napa Cabernet is supposed to taste somewhat the same. It's all Napa Cabernet. But I do believe, and I'm definitely not the only one, this has become something of a hot polemical topic in recent years among wine people, that many wines in Napa have begun hewing to a very similar profile, one that has proven appeal in this market for Napa wines that is increasingly a luxury market. It's that expensive taste profile we discussed earlier, the ripe fruit, the luscious, plush texture, the density, 
And what I really believe is it's not the fault of any specific unimaginative people or copycats, but that these economic conditions, just the sheer scale of money involved in the Napa wine industry has really encouraged this homogeneity. More with Esther Mobley after a quick break. We'll talk about the economic factors that are causing the homogeneity of the region's signature wine and why that matters for all wine drinkers, not just the ones who can shell out hundreds of dollars for that bottle of Napa Cap. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Esther, before the break, we chatted about how Napa Valley's Cabernet Sauvignon is becoming homogenized because of expensive wine consultants. They're not the only thing that is making the cost of winemaking so expensive in the region. You know in your story that prime vineyard land can reach up to a million dollars per acre in the most sought-after areas. How is that pushing winemakers to rely on consultants? Yeah, I think if you have invested that kind of money in buying land and starting a winery, you can't afford for the wines not to be successful. So people are disincentivized from taking risks, from hiring a young upstart, from hiring someone new and unproven. And even if you could hire someone who could make good wines, you probably need the winery to be a real smash success to get a lot of attention, to uh, have the critics pay attention to it. And so more and more, I think these consultants are seeming like not just a safe bet, but really the only bet one can make Mm. just at these sheer numbers we're talking about. So you're talking about how it's harder and harder for wineries in Napa to just experiment and take risks. Is it fair now to say that the standard is just perfection? If wine consultants are able to get wines to that certain standard... Is that really what wineries have to compete with now, just perfection? I think absolutely the standard is now perfection. And in fact, there's one very (laughs) clear, explicit way that that often gets measured in wine, which is that there's a lot of critics out there who score wines on a 100-point scale. Publications like The Wine Advocate, Wine Spectator, Wine Enthusiast, they'll give your wine a 92, a 91, a 93. And um, many wineries now are not happy with anything under 100 points. And uh, many wineries in Napa get 100 points from many of these critics. And when we talk about these consultants, we often talk about how many 100-point scores they've received. So they're really in a kind of more explicit way than in many other fields, I think, is this increasing expectation that nothing less than perfection would be acceptable. So... I'm hearing about the implications for winemakers. Stakes are super high. I'm hearing about the expensive costs of all this and the homogenization of the wines in the region. But what are the implications for someone just like me? I'm just an average wine lover. I'm not extremely rich. Um, But how does what's happening to Napa Valley affect someone like me? Well, increasingly, many of us cannot afford Napa Valley wines. Mm -hmm. And 
What's happening really is that a lot of winemakers are leaving Napa. Folks who want to start their own wineries, their own businesses, people who are winemakers by trade, employed by wealthy vintners, when they want to start their own business, can't afford to do it in Napa. So they might go to the Sierra Foothills. They might go to Lodi where they can afford a vineyard. And I think it's fair to say that we're seeing something of a brain drain from Napa for Mm. that reason. Mm -hmm. And wineries in some of these other areas are not as reliant on consultants. So there may also be more interesting jobs available to those winemakers. And then the other thing that's happening in Napa for those of us who love and want to drink Napa wines is more and more wines are just Cabernet Sauvignon. And that's increasingly Mm -hmm. the only thing you'll find in Napa. The price that a winery in Napa can charge for Cabernet Sauvignon compared with any other type of wine, any other grape variety, is so astronomical that you almost can't afford to not have Cabernet planted. So in recent years, we've seen a lot of vineyards that had other random grapes planted, whether it was Petit Syrah, Zinfandel, Chardonnay, rip those out in order to plant Cabernet and then sell a much more expensive bottle of wine from it. So I think one of the implications for wine drinkers like you and me is just that when we go wine tasting in Napa, there's not really quite the diversity of offerings that mm-hmm. there used to be. It's not only that wines are are being made, I think, with a particular style in mind, but even just from the very get-go, the same type of wine is being made in Napa. And that's not really true of any other region in California. Is that also why, I mean, maybe I'm a little late to this trend, but everyone seems to be talking about natural wines now. People are looking for just alternative types of wine to enjoy and afford, right? Absolutely. And I think the huge surge of interest in natural wine is partly a reaction to these homogenizing forces that have been overtaking a kind of established wing of the wine industry over the last decade or two. So yeah, if you're a wine drinker and you were going up to Napa and you just started kind of tasting the same thing over and over again, and then you go to some restaurant in San Francisco or Oakland and you see a plethora of wines that come in a range of different colors and hues and opacities Mm -hmm. and from grape varieties you've never heard of and that are embracing different styles. It's not hard to imagine how appealing that would seem to a lot of wine drinkers who maybe just, you know, were tired of tasting the same old thing over and over again. Esther Mobley is the senior wine critic at The Chronicle. You can find her story, Is Napa Valley Cabernet All Starting to Taste the Same, at sfchronicle.com slash Napa Valley. There you'll find the four other stories of the Napa Influx package. They include reporting about how the children of farm-working families in the region are choosing different paths, a review of Napa's tourist trap wineries, the rebranding of Napa's most historic wineries, and a who's who of the region's power players. Again, those stories are at sfchronicle.com slash Napa Valley. Thank you to Karen Creighton and Melissa Newcomb for the edits, and Sarah Feldberg and King Kaufman for the production help. Thanks for listening.